petite curly-haired 23-year-old Carla Faye Tucker, when not glassy-eyed under the effects of the multitude of drugs she tended to swallow at one sitting, may have looked like some proud mother's honor student. The fresh-faced Texan, however, by the time June 13, 1983 rolled around, had lived a hard enough life to have erased any schoolgirl wispiness from the core of her eyes. Innocence hadn't slowly evaporated in Carla Faye's case. It had been devoured painfully, masticated by a world that chewed her up halfway before she learned to bite back. She would later describe herself during that time in her life as being a mixed-up, peer-pressured radical whose life had been a succession of last-minute decisions, all without fear of consequence, all bad, all rotten. If one were to watch her face as the sun went down that June 1983, they would have seen the expression of someone who was, as she was to tell TV interviewer Larry King years later, crazy violent. A party had been in force for three days in the small brick house in Houston, Texas. There, Carla Fay lived with 37-year-old Daniel Garrett, described in his word as a pill doctor, a provider of pills. Inspiration for the weekend bash was the birthday of Carrie Ann, Carla's older sister, and as it steamed on, it had developed into something more than the high everyone hoped. Inhibitions disappeared, as well as clothing. Carrie had wanted a sex orgy, and her celebrants were eager to give her one. Garrett and the partiers en masse were like Carla Fay, whose existence had culminated into a no-life of drugs and booze. Both factors were predominant at the bash. Beer, whiskey, and tequila provided the means to wash down the dessert tray of Placidillus, Dilaudid, Valium, Mandrex, and more. On top of all of this, I'd been doing a considerable amount of coke and bathtub speed, Carla Fay attested in a 1990 interview with Lifeway Church magazine, recalling the night of her crime. I didn't usually do speed much. Heroin and downers were my preference because I'm a very hyper person and doing speed always skitzed me out and made me go crazy. That night, we were cooking speed and we started shooting it because it was there. And I loved the needle in my arm, what one would call a needle freak. Much of the talk at the party centered around the recent marital breakup of mutual friends Sean and Jerry Lindine. Dismal, Sean attended the party, beaten with a busted nose and lip. She'd left her biker husband a week earlier after he'd physically abused her for what would turn out to be the last time. Because Sean was Carla Fay's best friend, the latter stewed throughout the evening, threatening to drive to Jerry's apartment to beat him up. I saw what he'd done to Sean, and I was really mad because I was really protective of her, Carla Fay told Lifeway. I thought, yeah, I'll get even with him. My idea of getting even with him meant confronting him, standing toe-to-toe, fist-to-fist. As the party progressed, the bitter feelings raged. The pills added to the animosity, and the excitement of the very night itself seemed to heat up Carla Fay's anger. While most of the people at the party were enjoying the haze of their own smoky brain, and the absolute nakedness of whomever happened to be beside them on the floor. Carla Fay, Danny, Sean, and another friend, Jimmy Liebrandt, retreated to a corner in the kitchenette to slur their vehemence over wife-beater Dean. Their intention was revenge, but at this point, the kitchen table dialogue just spoke in generalities in terms of kicking ass and doing something to the bastard that he'd never forget. Eventually, Sister Carrie and her friend Ronnie joined the conversation, and the threats melted into sardonic laughter, eventually fading into idle tough talk that dissipated as the last of the capsules were downed and the final inhalations of the final joints were savored. Danny had to leave the party mid-evening, Sunday, June 13th, to go to work. 
He was a bartender at a local gin mill and had spent the last couple of hours sobering enough to perform his job half-consciously. Carla Fay drove him the few blocks, promising to pick him up at 2 a.m. when the tavern closed. When the couple left the house, they bid goodbye to the few who sauntered out with them for home, giggling at the lost weekend, and stepped over the remaining half-nude bodies passed out on the floor. There was no need to awaken them. After dropping off Danny, Carla Fay returned to find Sean more down than ever. She'd sunk into a reverie of love and hate for her husband. A bottle of tequila skew on her lap, she whimpered to Ronnie and anyone else caring to listen how she wanted him taken care of and that she still adored him. At last she slumbered, a half-scorn and half-smile taunting her lips. Ronnie fell asleep beside her. Carrie soon announced that she needed to go out and make some money. She was a prostitute and knew the corner in that part of town where pickups were a cinch and teetered outside in that direction. Waiting for Danny to finish work, Carla Fay and Liebrandt resumed their loathing of Jerry Lynn Dean. Carla Fay's dislike for the 27-year-old Dean stretched back several months when she first moved here to the Key Point District in Houston. She knew that Sean had married the man on a fling, and the first time she brought him over turned out to be the first time Carla Fay hated him. Arriving home after being gone all day, she found that Dean had had the nerve to roll his Harley-Davidson inside her home for safety's sake. Never a candidate for Good Housekeeping's Woman of the Year, Carla Fay nevertheless angered to see the motorcycle with its dripping oil pan leaning against her television set and emanating stale fumes. Despite Sean being her friend, she asked the couple to leave. Words passed between the biker, and Carla Fay then simmered for the presence of Sean. Since that time, the few instances Carla Fay and Dean met by chance brought locked horns. It was a personality clash. The girl simply disliked him. He disliked the girl. As Carla Fay admitted to Lifeway, they fought to fight. One time he was sitting in his car outside and I punched him in the eye for just being there. The relationship grew irreparable. Sean continued to see her girlfriend against her husband's wishes, adding to the feud and Dean used every chance he could to deride Carla Fay to his wife. Sean never wanted to keep secrets, even confessed to the other that hubby had come across a picture she owned of Carla Fay and her mother that he seemed to take great pleasure in stabbing through with a butcher's knife. Just before 2 a.m., Jimmy Liebrandt joined Carla Fay to fetch live-in Danny at work. Outside, the weather cooked, still crisp from a humid day. Maybe some of the effects of that weekend's binge were beginning to wane, but both were beginning to notice little things like the hot night wind that blew across their noses or the supreme quietude of Key Point tonight. By moonlight, Key Point looked more dingy than ever, and they laughed at that fact, resolute in their positions in life. But neither was in a jocular mood. Both were wired. Getting into her bomb of a car, Carla Fay expressed her desire to strip and dive into the water-filled quarry across the street, to flail, kick, bust out, to move. Jimmy, too, said he wanted to leap from his skin. Jimmy's bones remained in his hide, and Carla Fay remained in her jeans. Instead, she drummed the motor and pointed its trembling hood ornament in the direction of the bar where they knew Danny was just locking up. I have an idea, Danny chuckled as he slid into the passenger seat beside his woman. Been giving the situation some thought, and I say we go, tonight, now, to steal the son of a bitch's Jerry Dean's bike. The other two awed at the idea. They knew that there was no greater insult to a biker than to mess with his machine. On the way home, they discussed their plan. 
They'd go tonight while the idea was fresh, and let's face it, while they were still pent up with vengeance. Carla Fane knew Dean's apartment well on the ground floor of one of those cheap dumps down the road that looked more like a transient hotel than an apartment building. The kind of neighborhood, like Key Point, where cops preferred not to cruise unless they really had to. The joint would be easy to break into, and Dean would probably be fast asleep by now. He was known to smoke a couple of joints before hitting the hay to relax. More than likely, he'd be fast asleep. Back at their place, they found Sean wide awake again, though drowsy. She concurred that her husband would be counting Z's, and when hearing the details of their raid, wished the would-be robbers good luck. It would teach the bastard a lesson, she said. Danny, Jimmy, and Carla changed clothes, dressing entirely in black. On their way out the door, Danny directed Jimmy to grab a shotgun he kept hidden under the sofa. Once in the car, Danny took a thirty-eight from the glove compartment and dropped it into one of his boots. The weapons, Carla Fay later explained, were meant for protection in the area they were headed, not to use against anyone. At that time, she continued, they had no intention to kill Jerry Lynn Dean. Drawing their auto aside, lights off, into the lot adjacent to Dean's front door, the trio emerged. Carla Fay noted that the street out front of the place was dimly lit. We might not even take the damn thing tonight if there are any people roaming around outside the halls or something, Danny told them. But we have to case the joint first. At least we'll get a fairly good look to see how easy the bike will be to steal. Danny ordered Jimmy to remain outside to keep an eye out for cops while he and Carla Fay would attempt to snap the front door lock. Keeping with the shadows, they approached the front door. The light overhead the awning was out, which was good, and Danny wiggled the doorknob with his hand. Pushing it inward with a grunt, something clicked and the door swung inward. The couple edged in, nudging the door closed behind them. It wedged against the jam, having tilted under Danny's stress. In the dark, they knew they'd hit gold, for they could detect the rancid odor of gasoline mixed with the stale leather and cold metal. The smell meant motorcycle. Yet they waited before proceeding further into the room. From the hint of a foyer, they held their breath to listen. No sound. No sound. Peering into the darkness, the shadows petrified. No movement. No movement. Danny's fingers grappled his jacket lining for the flashlight somewhere in an inner pocket, then pointed its beam straight ahead. Silver handlebars of a motorcycle glistened. Even in the tangerine light, one could see they were highly polished. Moving down, the ray caught the signature in chrome decorating the gas tank. Harley Davidson. The rod was partially disassembled. One wheel and other parts lie strewn on a dirty tarpaulin stretched across the floor. Carla Fay, her eyes following the meager beam of light as Danny ran it past various angles of the room, scorned at the filthiness of the apartment. Danny's living room not only smelled like a garage, it looked like one. An open toolbox lay beside the bike. A potpourri of greasy tools left out of place, scattered everywhere, even on some of the furniture. She couldn't figure out why he would need a shovel and a pickaxe, but those two instruments leaned against the farthest wall. At first she was disappointed to find the bike in pieces, but then quickly reasoned that since it was impossible to steal the bike in whole, she could just as easily cripple the renovation job Dean obviously took great pride in by snatching some of the main components. Her thoughts barely manifested when a square of light pierced the blackness from a doorway beside them. Carla Fay gasped. It was Dean's bedroom, and he'd flicked on the light. Staring, waiting for his hulk to fill the doorway, 
the intruders saw the foot end of a bed protruding into view and could hear the squeak of its mattress. Who the hell is out there? Dean's all-too-familiar growl. Carla Fay felt herself waver. One foot aimed for the front door, the other toes dug in defiantly for a fight. Her hands clenched into fists. While she froze in this confusion, Danny had already reacted. He grabbed a hammer from beside the toolbox and was now racing, hammer out front for the bedroom. Carla Fay followed instinctively. From the doorway of the room, she watched Danny's weapon strike the figure of Dean, who had half risen from the covers. The blow, which had struck his head, jolted him backward. Blood crept from each nostril, then from the corners of his mouth. Not hesitating, Danny dealt a series of more whacks to the head that sent a thudding, almost dull echo throughout the room. Carla Fay found the violence thrilling. Her thighs tingled. The sight she saw was evil. It was wicked and totally sinful, brutally magnetic. She wanted to partake of the sacrifice and roll in the wantonness, to rip free her emotions that screamed to be unchained. Danny's bludgeons continued, for he seemed to be releasing his own frustrations. There was no role for her in this ritual until she saw the girl almost buried under the covers beside the other side of the bed where she'd slipped and was now attempting to hide herself. Sean's whelps, still black and blue, and already he'd got a tramp in bed. I'll kill her. Reaching back into the living room, Carla Fay grabbed the first murderous thing she saw, that pickaxe, three feet long and easy to the grip. Effortlessly, she lifted it and returned to the chamber already smelling of blood. Danny, his senses satiated for the moment, paused to watch what his girl was doing and followed her curious movements as she circled the bed and raised the axe overhead. Now, for the first time, it was his turn to watch her as she swooped the pick in an arc, tearing the blade through the torso of the cowering female. Let her have it, he cheered. Seeing that Dean's skull was thoroughly flattened, Danny stood as a spectator to Carla Fay's grand performance. The girl, who would later be identified as Deborah Thornton, had screamed only once and began to gurgle. The gurgling annoyed Carla Fay so she gave it to her again and again in the chest, legs, stomach, and shoulders. The more the body seemed to quiver, the more Carla Fay struck to stop its trembling. As the carcass turned to mush, blood splattered upward and across the room onto the murderess. Yuck, she mimicked, but delighted in the sensation. Danny threw a blanket over her head, daring her to hit the target blindfolded. Like a pinata, he rooted. And... The killing became a game. Under the darkness of the cover, Carla Fay's senses became more acute. She could hear the whoosh of the axe as it fell, could hear the squish-squish of the blade penetrating soft, wet flesh. Ecstasy. Although she denied it later, she would tell friends that the excitement generated a triple orgasm, the likes of which she'd never before experienced. Carla Fay Tucker had busted loose. When she'd finished with Thornton, empowered by the deviancy, she finished off Dean with another 20 blows. Before they left the scene of the crime, Danny left the pickaxe impaled in Deborah Thornton's heart. The next day was like any other for the murderers. They remembered very little and, well, what happened had been a small affair. A bastard and a bitch gone to hell. Their dispatchers didn't run and saw no need to hide. It was a small affair. In a taped interview with Larry King, Carla Fay, shunning the details of the murder, 
nevertheless recalled that I not only didn't walk around with any guilt, I was proud of thinking I'd finally measured up to the big boys. Apart from that initial pride, the only deep sense she may have experienced after the murder was lethargy. I didn't care about anybody. I didn't place any value on myself or anybody else. The landlord discovered the murder victims. Police were called in. An investigation began. It didn't take law officers long to connect the bodies to the killers. Cops learned with whom they associated and started asking questions. Everyone at the party had learned about what Carla Fandani had done. Hell, they'd even bragged about their deed. When the police started getting rough, everyone who knew anything talked. Danny's brother talked. Carrie Tucker talked. Sean talked. Even Jimmy Liebrandt, when he was nabbed, talked. He hadn't been involved, he said, but waited outside for what was supposed to be a burglary. Throughout the days of the trial to come, Liebrandt turned state's evidence to walk away free. Carla Faye Tucker would be sentenced to death. So would Danny Garrett. Garrett died in prison a few years later. Carla Faye would live long enough to repent and become Texas's most controversial figure ever on any state's death row. Carla Faye Tucker was born in Houston, Harris County, Texas, on November 18, 1959. Life started out normal enough for the doll-faced little brunette with large almond eyes and a set of dimpled cheeks. By the time she came into the world, the Tuckers already had two daughters, Carrie Ann, one-year-old, and Kathy Lynn, two, and a German shepherd who was child-friendly. Larry, her father, was a longshoreman in the Gulf of Mexico, and her mother, Carolyn, a home mom. Carla Faye's earliest years were the happiest. As a family unit, the Tuckers often vacationed in a small cottage they owned on Caney Creek in Brazoria, Texas. I was an itty-bitty girl. We were family, and we used to go to the bay house and do neat things with a boat and dog and water skiing and fishing and stuff, but it didn't last very long. She told former Miss America Terry Meusen during a Christian broadcasting network in the 90s. Mr. and Mrs. Tucker had an on-again, off-again marriage, literally. They divorced and remarried several times, trying to make a go of it, but each time they'd regress. Each time it was because of infidelity. The three daughters felt the sting of the breakup, only to rejoice at the reunions, only to be torn asunder again when their parents' union did so. When Carla Faye was ten, the final dissolution took place. It was messy. I don't know why my parents divorced. I was too young to know, she told Lifeway Church magazine, which featured her story in a 1990 edition. My dad got custody of us girls, and we all wanted to go with mother. My father couldn't control us real good. He tried to discipline us, but we were just too much. Just too much. The divorce only added to a number of personal problems Carla Fay was already experiencing at a young age. For one, she'd always felt like the ugly duckling between two blonde-haired, blue-eyed, fair-skinned siblings. Also, she was extremely self-conscious about a large birthmark on her arm. She found it hard to communicate with other kids in school and those who played up and down Hewitt Street where she lived. During the final divorce proceedings, which seemed like an eternity to a young child caught up in the midst of the battle, Carla found out exactly why she did not look like Carrie and Kathy. Her mother admitted to her that she was the result of an extramarital affair. Even though her father had accepted Carla Faye as his own, the third daughter from that moment on never psychologically could convince herself that she belonged to the Tuckers as real kids Kathy and Carrie belonged. Carla Faye Tucker wanted a family, 
So she did what all the other children do when their own isn't definable, looked for one elsewhere. By the time she was 10 years old, she'd been smoking marijuana for nearly a year, a recreation introduced by her sisters. Finding that Mary Jane was not companion enough to make her feel like the someone she wanted to feel like, she tried the harder stuff. Before she was 11, she was shooting heroin. The influence of others' peer pressure, Carla Fay explained to Ms. Miusen. My sisters were into drugs, and they had a friend who was older. They always hung around with older people. There were a lot of drugs. There was sex, too, at an age when other girls still played with dolls. Because she went where her sisters went, she began hanging out with the same crowd. The clique largely consisted of bikers, chief among them a neighborhood gang called the Bandits. This club often conducted drug fests that ended in orgies. Carla Fay, present at some of these parties, even though initially not a participant, took mental notes wide-eyed and, in the process, learned that the birds and the bees could make quite an interesting study. Her first contact with sex came when she was 12. One evening, she happened to stop by one of the members' houses looking for her sisters, who she discovered weren't there. The biker talked her into joining him on a high. After they shot up, he took her for a ride on his bike to a secluded spot where he had his way with a preteen. She liked it and learned that sex on high was the ultimate trip. She had found a family. It brought her bright colors, a buzz in the head, and a warm feeling all over her body. And a sense of belonging. Dysfunctionality roared. Under her father's custody, Carla Fay was expected to walk the straight and narrow, but he was rarely home to supervise. He worked two shifts, was gone late into the evening, and his daughters took full advantage of their liberty. Carla Fay dropped out of school in the middle of the seventh grade without much parental disapproval. When in her mother's care, the straight and narrow often curved, like the time her mother discovered the girl sneaking a Mary Jane in her bedroom. Instead of lecturing the adolescent as her dad would have done, Mrs. Tucker scolded her for her inability to pack a smooth joint, then instructed her on the fine art of rolling. Then again, consider Mama Tucker was not June Cleaver. To make ends meet after the divorce, she drifted, if at first hesitantly, into prostitution. Being yet in her twenties and still blossoming as a noble housewife, she found her place in the profession of the call girl a lucrative one. She was the girl next door, oozing temptation. When Carolyn Tucker inherited a Carla Fay, whom her ex-husband could no longer handle, she may have at first worried how she could carry on her productive trade from her Genoa, Texas apartment in the presence of a teenager. Evidently, according to Carla Fay, Mama devised a solution beneficial to all. Carla was to testify later, My mother took me to a place where there was all men and wanted to school me in the art of being a call girl. I wanted to please my mother so much. I wanted her to be proud of me. So, instead of saying no, I just tried to do what she asked. The thing is, I knew deep down inside that what I was doing was wrong. Carla Faye Tucker became a prostitute at age 14. After a while, it no longer seemed sordid, especially when she accompanied her mother as an inveterate rock groupie on concert tours state to state. Highlights of this period included personal meetings with the Allman Brothers, the Marshall Tucker Band, and the Eagles. For a teenager who didn't know how to handle it and hadn't heard of the word moderation, life was enchanting. Never mind that the speed in the booze might catch up. 
When Carla Fay was 16, she met and wed Stephen Griffith, a mechanic. On the surface, the marriage appeared happy. Griffith thought it was. He liked his wife's tomboyish quality, her feistiness, and even though they fought constantly, he always saw her more as a friend first, which he considered healthy in any marriage. She wasn't one to hold in her feelings. He appreciated that. We fist fought a lot, he told the Houston Chronicle. I've never had men hit me as hard as she did. Whenever I went into a bar, I didn't have to worry because she had my back covered. But underneath, wifey fidgeted. The things she and Griffith did together, get high, get drunk, make love and war, all were old hat to her. She needed to be free, to let the colt run and maybe run around in circles until it was daft. But at least the result would be her choice. Not her mother's, not her father's, not her sister's. She left Griffith. It was then that she met her friend, Sean Dean, who in turn introduced her to Danny Garrett. Working late hours as a prostitute in Key Point, Carla Fay found Garrett an easy companion. She was free to run around in those circles. More so, Garrett asked no questions and respected her career. Better still, he sustained her habit of pills and powder. Tucker and Garrett were indicted for the murders of Jerry Lynn Dean and Deborah Thornton in September 1983. The alleged killers were tried separately. Of Carla Fay's trial, the state vowed to prosecute to its full extent, despite her gender, despite the fact that the death penalty was normally not sought for female defendants. Court TV Online records, Carla Fay entered a plea of not guilty and was tried before a jury in the 180th Judicial District Court of Harris County, Texas, Judge Patricia Lycos presiding. Voir dire, jury selection, commenced on March 2, 1984, and concluded on April 9th. Testimony began on April 11th and concluded on April 18th. Final arguments were heard on April 19, 1984. A verdict of guilty of the offense of capital murder was returned the same day. Garrett was found guilty also in a subsequent court trial. Both he and his accomplice girlfriend were sentenced to death before the end of the year. It had been a set of speedy trials, both parties' defense teams unable to overcome the profusion of witnesses against their clients and the sickening violence of the crimes. Garrett would die in prison not longer after his conviction of liver disease, but Carla Faye Tucker would endure a waiting game of appeal after appeal directed to the state penal directors, to the Supreme Court, and eventually to the governor of Texas. All bodies would refuse their requests, and George W. Bush, the governor in whose hands clemency rested, would reject her. The prisoner would spend, in all, 14 years in prison, only to walk the last mile she had tried so long to avoid. She would be executed on February 3, 1998. After her sentence, Carla Fay was removed from Houston to death row at Mountain View Prison in Gatesville, Texas. From the moment of her incarceration until the day she died, her world would consist of her cell, which she shared with fellow inmate Pam Perillo, and the cavernous halls of the single death row building in the Mountain View compound. Besides a few friendly guards, her only neighbors would be less than ten other women, like Perillo, slated for the same fate as she, a dose of lethal injection. Condemned convicts were not allowed to mix with the prison's general population. The outside world was visible only through the crisscross bars of her cell. Its only ingress was the wind and the rain that sometimes inadvertently blew in through the windowsill. Her hopes for release were unrealistic, and she knew it. 
She'd sealed her future with multiple swipes of a pickaxe on two human beings. But she did fight to escape her death sentence. Her reasoning being that the murder she committed had not been premeditated, premeditation being a requisite for capital punishment in Texas. When interviewed by chat host Larry King two weeks before her death, she suggested that bad advice from her lawyers had nudged her into her no-hope predicament. I did not plead guilty at the beginning of my trial, she divulged, but only because my attorneys had said not to. If I had to do it again, I would. Had she pleaded guilty at the outset, the messy revelations of the trial would have been avoided, all the bad press and past digging, and she may have, she believed, drawn a maximum life sentence term. After all, she'd already confessed before the trial began. As she told King, up to that point, I had already admitted what I did, already told the truth about everything. Early attempts in 1984 by Carla Fay's lawyers for a retrial were denied by Judge Lycos. Further remonstrations to the Court of Criminal Appeals to overrule their client's conviction and sentence fell on equally deaf ears in 1987 and 1988. On June 25, 1989, the U.S. Supreme Court turned down her motion for appeal. In the face of these disappointments, Carla Fay and her representing legal team utilized every lawful channel open for them to rescue her. The 1990s were to be her battleground, a time when the nation was leaning to be more aware of the rights of man, and the tonsils of the media were sprayed heavily with the mouthwash of political correctness. Reform groups in every state that practiced capital punishment upraised religious and government spokespersons from among their cities to preach the cruelties and horrors of the electric chair, the gas chamber, and the needle. Carla Fay and her plight became controversial. Not only did factions question her legal right to die, they claimed that the court never proved premeditation. But while she waited to die, Carla Fay Tucker had found religion. Even her doubters admitted that her attitude had vastly changed from the rebellious thing she had been when first hauled into court. As her battle for life waged on, two sides of the story emerged. While one side quipped that anyone on death row would pose religiously to save their neck, the other answered that that surface kind of faith could not endure above bitterness, but that, in truth, she continued to spiritually grow. But Texas, a state known for its firm ground stand on capital punishment, didn't waver, even though its antagonists reminded the state that it hadn't executed a woman since the Civil War. Tucker repeatedly sought an evidentiary hearing in the trial court to address the issues raised in her earlier petitions, arguing that the affidavits submitted by trial counsel were wholly insufficient. In February 1992, Judge Lycos rejected the request for a new hearing. Rather, she set a tentative date. June 30th, for execution. A month later, the defense, a pair of new lawyers, won a victory to stay the execution through the Court of Appeals to give them more time to protest the latest rulings. On June 22nd, Court TV resumes, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals ordered that an evidentiary hearing be conducted, at which time the applicant will have an opportunity to prove allegations 10 through 12 of the amended petition. The allegation cited that Jimmy Liebrandt, who had been with Garrett and Tucker the night of the murder, and who had walked away free, had committed perjury on the stand. Although the order directed Judge Lycos to hold an evidentiary hearing based on the perjury claims, three judges of the Court of Criminal Appeals were of the view that an evidentiary hearing should also be conducted on the ineffective assistance of counsel claims. On July 6 and 7, 1992, the partial evidentiary hearing was held before Judge Lycos, 
who made it clear that the hearing was limited solely to the evidentiary matters relating to James Liebrandt. On November 19, 1992, the judge filed her supplemental findings of fact and conclusions of law and order, which was submitted to the Court of Appeals. This report addressed all the claims contained in applicants' pleadings, even though a hearing was held only on the claims relating to James Liebrandt. In the meantime, even though a response from the appellate court had not yet been returned, Judge Lycos again ordered an execution date for Carla Faye Tucker. Members of the appellate court, in turn, crushed the order and directed Lycos and the Department of Corrections to honor the stay of execution in effect until they'd made their decision on the findings of the evidentiary hearing. It took many months for an answer to come from the Court of Criminal Appeals, but when it did, it was bad news for the supplicant. They would not alter the initial verdict after all. Simultaneously, they lifted her stay of execution. Judge Lycos's handling of the evidentiary hearing, coupled with her drive to schedule a date for execution, riled those in the nation who were campaigning hard against capital punishment to begin with. With the clock winding down, Carla Fay's lawyers utilized the little that was left them for reprieve, doubtlessly hoping that the clamor of public sentiment might aid their cause to commute her life sentence. They appealed once again to the Texas Appellate and the District Courts in Houston to challenge the constitutionality of the state's clemency procedure, says Court TV Online. In the 155-page court document, Tucker's lawyers repeatedly stressed that she was fully rehabilitated and posed no future threat to society. Attached to this petition were sizable documents supporting the premise that, during the years of her incarceration, she'd become a socially safe and faith-conscious citizen. Included in the package were testimonies of various professionals and laypersons who had encountered Carla Fay throughout the trial and imprisonment process. These people offered their opinion on her readjustment to normalcy, her religious conversion, and her present character. Witnesses on her behalf included, among others, a psychiatrist, a drug abuse expert, a deputy sheriff, and a prison chaplain. Some clinicians seriously doubted that she really knew what she was doing the night of the murder because of the drugs she'd taken. Others claimed that her formative years led her head-on into a crash course of some kind that could not have been avoided. Underscoring the message of the petition that she was now a God-fearing human being and model prisoner, Carla Fay herself wrote a letter addressed directly to the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles and Governor George Bush. Both parties had control over her fate, although the governor would lack the power of clemency without the majority affirmation of the board. The following is the letter, excerpted. I'm in no way attempting to minimize the brutality of my crime. It obviously was very, very horrible, and I do take full responsibility for what happened. I also know that justice and law demand my life for the two innocent lives I brutally murdered that night. If my execution is the only thing, the final act that can fulfill the demand for restitution for justice, then I accept that. I will pay the price for what I did in any way our law demands it. It was three months after I'd been locked up, when the ministry came to the jail and I went to the services, that night accepting Jesus into my heart. When I did this, the full and overwhelming weight and reality of what I'd done hit me. I began crying that night for the first time in many years, and to this day, tears are part of my life. Fourteen years ago, I was part of the problem. Now, I'm part of the solution. I've proposed to do right for the last 14 years, not because I'm in prison, but because my God demands this of me. I know right from wrong, and I must do right. 
I don't really understand the guidelines for commutation of death sentences, but I can promise you this. If you commute my sentence to life, I will continue for the rest of my life on this earth to reach out to others to make a positive difference in their lives. I see people in here in the prison where I am who are here for horrible crimes. I can reach out to these girls and try to help them change before they walk out of this place and hurt someone else. I'm seeking you to commute my sentence and allow me to pay society back by helping others. I can't bring back the lives I took, but I can, if I'm allowed, help save lives. That is the only real restitution I can give. The parole board was unmoved. Governor Bush was unmoved. On January 28, 1998, the appellate court denied clemency for Carla Faye Tucker. Her execution was scheduled for the coming week, February 3rd. Evangelist and author Linda Strom often visited Carla Faye Tucker throughout the last decade of her life at Mountain View's death row. Strom's recently published book, Carla Faye Tucker, Set Free, relates the inmate's ongoing conversion to religion and attests that Carla Faye died fully repentant of her crime. According to Strom, Carla Faye had found what she called the power of forgiveness while still in Harris County Jail, Houston, awaiting her sentencing. A minister had visited the jail and Carla Faye, attending his services, took a Bible back to her cell more for reading material than as a gesture of faith. But over the next few days, reading the holy book for the first time, she began to realize a strength she never thought she had, enough to carry her through the coming trial and sentencing. By the time she arrived at death row, she'd become a spiritual lift to other prisoners there, who found her upbeat attitude a light in the dark. Recalling Carla, Strom writes, Not only did Carla see people, she listened to them with her head and her heart. Her words, both her spoken ones and written ones, packed a wallop and were always encouraging. In 1995, Carla Fay married Dana Lane Brown, a member of a prison ministry group. Because she was on death row and not permitted to attend ceremonies, Brown married her through a proxy in Waco, Texas. The event drew media attention because of the notoriety of capital punishment, Carla Fay being its inherent spokesperson. She'd already been the subject of much print expended on the cause from columnists, women's rights activists, and politicians, both for and against the issue. During her confinement, she'd been visited by various celebrities who believed her conversion to be genuine, including ex-Miss American broadcaster Terry Musen, an author of Dead Man Walking, Catholic nun Sister Helen Prejean. Newt Gingrich championed her cause, and so did evangelist Pat Robertson. Robertson tried for five years to remove her from death row, his efforts culminating with a plea for her life on a live television broadcast. At a press conference hosted by the Christian Broadcasting Network, he said, I am one who supported the death penalty for hardened criminals, but I do think that any justice system that's worthy of the name must have room for mercy. In the case of Carla Faye Tucker, she is not the same person who committed those heinous axe murders. She is totally transformed and I think to execute her is more an act of vengeance than it is appropriate justice. A frequent and surprising visitor to Mountain View Prison was Ron Carlson, brother of Carla Faye Tucker's female victim, Deborah Thornton. At first a rabid crusader for her death, Carlson, like Tucker, found religion and, in the interim, absolution. His story is highlighted in the 1999 video, The Power of Forgiveness, produced by Gateway Films and presented by Vision Video. The documentary traces Carlson's life, 
his experiences from the anguish he suffered when first learning of his sister's murder and climaxes when he visits an unexpected Carla Faye Tucker in prison. It made me sick to know what they did to my sister. Carlson recalls his feelings the day after the killing. The bodies were mutilated. Some 25 to 30 puncture wounds on each body. My sister was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He remembers months of wishing, night and day, that he would someday have the opportunity to kill Carla Fay. He wished he could have her at his mercy, with a pickaxe in his hands. Already having experimented with drugs, the loathing drove him deeper into the practice until his life no longer resembled what it had been before the tragedy. He stated, I knew I had to do something with the hatred and the anger that was within me. It was consuming me. Strangely, as did the woman he despised, he found his faith in the Bible. Reading about the crucifixion of Christ, he realized the reality of the tests everyone is put to in this life. I learned that if I want to be forgiven, I must learn to forgive, he attests. Seeking an audience with Carla Fay, who hadn't known who he was until he identified himself, he leaned towards the plexiglass window, which separated inmates from their callers, then gently told her who he was and that he forgave her for what she'd done. She cried, says Carlson. From that one visit, they became friends. He visited her often at Mountain View. The video also examines the flip side of this human reaction through Deborah Thornton's husband, Richard. Until the day Carla Fay was executed, Richard was her most outspoken adversary. On the day she died, he led a group of friends and relatives to the walls beyond the prison to cheer and jeer. Handmade signs held aloft directed the condemned inmate to have a nice day, Carla Fay. To a cluster of reporters, Richard appraised the situation. This is the day Carla Fay Tucker will die. This is Deborah Thornton Day. What goes around, comes around. And of her religious conversion, he scoffed. Pointing to the crowds behind him, he replied, If every one of you were to get transcripts of the 1994 trial and compare it to what Carla Faye Tucker says today, you'd have no problem understanding that that woman is lying. In late afternoon, February 3, 1998, Governor George W. Bush closed the door on the last breath of hope for Carla Faye. He denied a 30-day delay to the execution set for later that evening. A press release issued from the governor's mansion stated, Many people have contacted my office about this execution. I respect their strong convictions, but Carla Faye Tucker has acknowledged she's guilty of a horrible crime. She was convicted and sentenced by a jury of her peers. The role of the state is to enforce our laws. The courts, including the United States Supreme Court, have reviewed the legal issues in the case, and therefore I will not grant a 30-day stay. May God bless Carla Faye Tucker, and may God bless her victims and their families. Carla Faye Tucker died an hour later. In preparation for her death, while the reprieve from the governor was still pending, officials removed the prisoner from Mountain View and delivered her by plane to Huntsville State Prison, where the state's execution chamber is located. Chatting briefly with reporters, she remained what CNN US News termed upbeat, dining on a last meal composed of a banana, a peach, and a salad. With her were her husband Dana Brown and a few family members and friends. Visibly comforting her as the appointed time of her execution, 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, drew near, was Ron Carlson, Deborah Thornton's forgiving brother. Dressed in the white uniform of Mountain View, Carla Fay had declined to don the orange work suits usually worn by condemned prisoners in Huntsville. Relaying her to her death would be a lethal injection, 
a blend of quick-acting barbiturate and paralytic drugs, fed intravenously. Texas, which adopted this form of capital punishment in 1977, is one of 27 states employing it. Other states utilize electric voltage, gas, rope, or firing squad as life-taking means. According to AP writer Michael Grasick, asked what her thoughts would be when strapped to the death chamber gurney, Carla Fay replied, I'm certainly going to be thinking about what it's like in heaven. Huntsville received the news of Governor Bush's rejection at approximately 5.25 p.m., at which time it was relayed to Carla Fay. She was given solitude to pray and bid goodbye to her intimate company. Before the hour ended, prison personnel and a minister approached her cell to lead her through the whitewashed door at the farthest end of the corridor. Beyond that door was the death chamber. It's a cubicle, really, of sterile white and bright lights, resembling a doctor's examining room, but with a one-way viewing glass on two sides for spectators and a stark array of paraphernalia whose purpose is not subtly concealed. That evening, while her loved ones peered in sorrowfully from one waiting area, Opposite them stood members of her victims' families, feeling less pity. Allowed a moment for last words, she sat on the gurney to which, in a few moments, she'd be bound with leather restraining straps and addressed reflective windows knowing that beyond their glare waited and watched those with tears and those without. I would like to say to all of you, the Thornton family and Jerry Dean's family, that I am so sorry. I hope God will give you peace with this. She then whispered a farewell to her husband and thanked the warden for his kindness to her in her last hours. Even as she was uttering her final goodbyes, the attendants were already attaching the tubes to her wrists and buckling her. When she was finished, Ms. Tucker closed her eyes, licked her lips, and appeared to say a silent prayer, Grasick noted. She coughed twice, groaned softly, and went silent as the drugs took effect. Carla Fay busted loose.